Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 3 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. The theme of Season 3 is the road to Doha. We will be exploring issues relevant to the least developed countries ahead of the 5th UN Conference on the LDCs in Doha, Qatar in 2022. Today, we're speaking with Charlotte Ronya, founder and CEO of Jami.one, a digital tool to optimize saving communities and connect them to a better future. Charlotte, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Please tell us about yourself. Where are you from? What did you study? And what led you to find Jami.one? <laughs> so I'm from Denmark, but I've studied microfinance and development studies before going into international business and politics. And so finding Jami is almost like Jami found me. Since I was 10 years old, I wanted to find a way that we could combat actually war, which starts with poverty alleviation and then empowering people to have more opportunity to escape poverty, essentially. So that's why I co-founded Jami One. And what drew you to the idea of financial inclusion? So to me, financial inclusion is sort of the fundamentals, right? If you don't have access to capital, to insurance, so that you can have financial stability in your life, financial resilience, then everything you do is so fragile. It can so easily go away if you encounter just one problem. So access to capital to build on what you're already doing good and access to services like insurance will build the safety net for you to continuously improve the life of you and your family in the long run. And is being a Danish citizen and coming from the Nordic countries, which have very strong safety nets, was that a part of what drew you to this idea of building safety nets for other people? Probably, you know, it probably lives within you in the way you think. Uh, so I can't deny that, but I haven't given it much thought. But yeah, I think we take it for a given and it does enable us to do a lot of stuff. However, I also look to, we work primarily with countries in Africa. And I see a lot of community that we've lost on this journey. I hope that we can now create solutions where we keep the community and still build a stronger safety net. And please tell us a bit about how Jami works. Thank you. So Jami is actually a word that we have borrowed from Swahili, language used in several East African countries. It means community. And basically what we do is that we enable communities to have access to financial services. And we do this by building on the already existing social structures. So when you don't have access to financial services, you often use your community as sort of a supplement or an alternative. You use your communities for savings, for loans, even for insurance, to save up together, to pay a small contribution. And then in the event of an emergency, you have some sort of an insurance and so forth. And what One does is we leverage this foundation. There's already a structure of trust and accountability, and there's already a lot of data because all of this goes recorded, but on pen and paper. So we built a digital system, app-based, which only requires for one person out of a whole group of more than 20 people 
to have a smartphone and start registering the group's data. So it's a practical tool, right? And enables you to do your financial accounting transparently and accurately, safely guarded in the cloud and with sharing of data across the group. But at the same time, you are building a digital identity and a track record that can enable access to financial services. So that's an amazing model. It sounds like it's based on a lot of work with savings groups and other financial inclusion techniques that came out of the development space. Is that where you guys got the idea? Yeah, that was the big inspiration. I would say even before that, though, there was a step which was us looking a lot at and me and in, in working with, I would say even before that, there also were a lot of steps in me working with microfinance institutions in East Africa and experience in so-called SACOs, which is a type of cooperatives and also cooperatives just in general, to say that there's a lot of strength here. Here is where you have to trust. Here is where you actually have the data on everyone. Whereas you can say the development sector is stepping in and using some of those same principles for the very most vulnerable in society. So it's an inspiration both for what is naturally occurring, but also what is happening in the development sector. And it seems like this is a different way of building a business where traditionally it seems like businesses would take a model that had been successful in one place and try to bring it somewhere else. But here it looks like you're really looking at kind of the sociological underpinnings of society and structures that already existed and building your business on top of that. Is that as innovative as it seems? Thank you for recognizing that, I would say. And maybe actually taking us back to the introduction to our conversation, right? In that I don't wish personally, I don't think anyone in our team wants to replace what is happening in those countries that we work in with what is happening, for instance, in Denmark, where I live. I don't think that's an optimal solution either. So rather than taking something from Denmark or Europe or, or America and, and placing that in that context and just saying what is already there, what works very well, and what's the full potential of this structure? So, and I've seen this also in competitive solutions to ours, where you're trying to take the people sort of out of the context, out of the community, and just place them with individual financial services. And that's definitely not what we see as the correct solution. So we see keeping people in that community because the community is so much more than just financial institution or inclusion and services, but keeping them in the community and leveraging the whole community to have more services as a community. So strengthening that basis and keeping that basis, not trying to individualize anything and being respectful of the way that things are done in the context. I think that's fantastic to hear, Charlotte. We've heard from other speakers on this podcast the importance of humility of approaching a problem and not thinking that you already know the answer before you understand the local context. What is it about East Africa that has fostered so many innovations in financial services and digital payments? Hmm, that's a very good question, but I can at least answer from my perspective that the pervasiveness of community financing across East Africa is extremely high. So in that sense, it draws at least our service to look at that context. And whether that has something to do with the innovation, I don't know. We, of course, saw M-Pesa very early on. And that has been a game changer. And whether that's coincidence, I don't dare to venture into that. That's beyond my domain. But the domain of community savings and loans, I would say that here we have people joining not just one, but several types of communities for financial access and financial resilience. That's really helpful, Charlotte, because we've seen at UNCDF many 
both businesses and development actors try to take the M-Pesa model and lift it out and then just import it somewhere else, and it, invariably it fails. So I know my colleagues in the field working in financial inclusion have talked a lot about the importance of local models and specific contexts. So thanks for giving us some of the explanations to explain why East Africa is so specific and has been such a hotbed of innovation in this area. So what were the biggest challenges you faced in establishing Jamie.1? I'm always a little bit um, tricked by this question because actually it hasn't been that hard of a journey. And that sounds impossible, but maybe it's due to the motivation. Working with groups and working with communities is very, very rewarding. And we've found and have had a very high openness of the communities to our services, to our presence, and been very well received, I would say. And then, of course, I think as a founder, you're always trying to make sure you review the context and you do your service and you want to do the surveys even deeper and even more in depth. And you're so afraid, or at least I was so afraid that we got something wrong, that we missed something and that we somehow didn't listen enough to what was really the need here. Um, so far, so good, I would say. Of course, in implementation, there can be struggles also when you work with models that are already established. So if you take, for instance, you mentioned the savings groups and the development sector. Here we have an institution that has gone on for 30 years by now, where in, and just to the listeners who's not familiar with savings groups, in, in that context is that the development sector uses savings groups as a financial resilience building tool. So they actually go out and recruit some of the most low income in the community and put them in a group, teach them about the values of saving up and possibly taking loans for each other and facilitate these groups. And taking something that has been done for 30 years and digitizing that, <laughs> that is a big shift also for people that have gained trust in the paper-based accounting system. And also then starting the discussion of bringing in financial services when you're talking about a development sector that has traditionally been more or less close to only developmental partners, stepping into this whole private partner is new for many institutions. So there's a lot to learn here, and I think a huge potential. But I would say that that's probably where it is. <laughs> and so Jamie is a private company. Please give us a sense of your growth path, how many countries you're working in, how many clients you have now, and where you plan to scale. So our growth path was, first of all, that the first few months of our existence, we did this research in four African countries. This was in Ghana, Uganda, Kenya, and Ethiopia. And then we decided to start somewhere <laughs> in one context, and that was Ethiopia. Here we found one NGO partner, and we released a, a prototype of our technology and worked very closely with the women's savings groups that were using the technology to constantly improve it and understand how do you implement, how do you train groups in using this new technology, what kind of training materials we need and so forth. We then digitize that whole training in Guide, so you have a full guide system. And then we engaged with the government, so I see ourselves very much as an ecosystem player. So we have a project with the government of Ethiopia to digitize 100,000 women in savings group within half a year from today, actually. We have actually collaborations, we can go back to that, or a funded project by UNCDF. And then we have by now more than 40 NGO partners that are using our technology to some extent to digitize their savings groups. So the first 900 people we onboarded ourselves, taking those learnings and then 
partnering with NGOs, we went in 2020 from 1,000 to 5,000 users. Of course, that was a time where lockdowns were playing a big role in terms of how quick we could go. However, it also created a sense of urgency on digitization. So it was a little bit give and take that situation, I'd say. So coming to 2021, we had 5,000 users. By April, we had 10. And I'm happy to say that we are coming up here in September on 20,000 and with the potential to leave this year with um, 40,000 users. This is a very steep climb in users and a very interesting position to be in because that gives us leverage. So we've talked now mostly about the starting point, digitizing savings groups and so forth. That's to capture, as we said, the digital identity and the credit worthiness. Then we use that data to connect people with financial services. The first thing we experimented with was loans. And so what happened in 2020 was that the first collateral free loans in the history of Ethiopia to be provided by a financial institutions were provided by Metamom and MFI based on Jami1 data. And the repayment rate on these loans, even though they were individual loans and they were loans without collateral was 99.99% because these women mean business and they're not gonna give away an opportunity like this. And then I'm looking to get the next loans. And I think just waiting for us to not be so slow <laughs> in delivering the next loans. And so we are scaling that effort now and also looking into the insurance services to add on with that data. Thank you, Charlotte. I think it's so exciting that your pilot country was Ethiopia, which is by far not the easiest country to start in East Africa, and that you're experiencing such a tremendous rate of growth. And of course, we're thrilled that you partnered with UNCDF on some of this work because uh, UNCDF, through our colleague Pam Esser, had done quite a lot with savings groups across East Africa and really was a key force in the development focus of building savings groups and trust and getting women into these positions to access more finance. So what are some of the biggest challenges your clients face in planning for the future? So our customers so far and the financial institutions, because as I said, with the numbers we're now showing, then we have a bargaining power. It's no longer one woman walking into an MFI and asking for a loan and getting whatever rate. It's us asking, do you want the business of potentially 20,000 customers and what rates will you give us? And you need to pay us for that data. You were going to do marketing, you were going to do extensive KYC processes and credit rating, and we make all that easy for you. So not trying to make it more expensive, actually less expensive. In terms of the users and their planning ahead, I think it's a variety of things. And I think sometimes you have the development sector stepping in and providing quite a lot of tools actually to do this planning, where Jami1 won't have the resources to do all that training on the ground and contextualize training and saying, okay, so here we're working with commercial people and they're having their businesses and here we're working in a rural setting and it's uh, farming and agricultural practices and so forth. And so there I see a, a big collaboration and a variety of things facing our women. Some of the things that usually stand in the way of our users sort of progressing is access to capital, of course, for making a higher production if you are talking yield or higher, better bulk purchases if you are more in the sales sector. That's part of it. Another part is definitely insurance. Most of these are women. So there's both the insurance issues of your children, but also of yourself, if you're giving birth and so forth. And tuition, because I'm yet to meet a woman to whom tuition for their child is not the almost number one priority in their everyday life. 
And so paying for that can mean that you need to give up something in your business and when that comes up. So those are some of the elements that we see the women tackling and exactly the points of entry for us, I see. This is where we need to be supporting our users. Thank you for pointing that out, Charlotte, and CDF, that it's exactly that, that education is such a key priority for women around the world and that one of their key challenges is having the tuition money on the day that it's due because they may not have had a reliable place to save whatever extra money they have during the year. So the savings groups and the access to credit is so useful for that. Why is it so important for you, Charlotte, to focus your business on the base of the pyramid and especially on women? I would say if we start with women, this is the foundation, of course, very much of of the world, right? But of all of these institutions, often the caregiver, the breadwinner, the person holding the financial decision and very trustworthy also in our experience. So let's start from there. They have an, an innate sense of responsibility that comes just with their biology, I would say almost, right? We have that. Um, so that's a part of the things. And then coming to the bottom of the pyramid, maybe we should stop calling it bottom of the pyramid and just talk about, we call it also base, because that's where we have most people. So to me, it's a no-brainer that most people in the world <laughs> should have access to financial services, of course, and that there is, of course, a business case in servicing this segment. You just need to bring down the unit cost, the unit economics, and that's what you can do with technology. So... What we bring to the table here, and also when you see, or if you should talk about sort of a license to operate. So why should a Danish company even operate in Ethiopia? We do have a local co-founder, I want to say that. But still, of course, uh, we are two founders from Denmark. So why should we operate there? And what I see in Ethiopia is that financial sector is expanding, but it expands from the top down, right? So you're taking the top 10 most uh, well-off in the country, and then you're maybe moving down to the 30%. And I get that. It's the same in Denmark and and all over the world. However, that's going to take a long time then till we get to the base of the pyramid, basically. And so... This is where I see sort of our license to operate is to start with those that are not the center of attention for financial services. So in that sense, actually less competition and a huge market if you can get your unit economics under control. Thank you, Charlotte, for those fantastic points. UNCDF has been making this argument for a long time from the development perspective that there is money to be made at serving And we can say base, you know, meaning bottom, but we can also say it meaning foundation. So I agree with you that we should redefine the base of the pyramid to say the foundation of all the world's population. And, you know, Mohammed Yunus has been making this argument for a long time. And hopefully the success of the microfinance industry in turning small loans to poor people into profits would convince more financial and business actors that there is profit to be made here. And of course, your work is doing that as well. So what is the average loan size that women take from you using the Jammy app? And what is the most common use of the money that women borrow for? So, so far, we've worked with the VSLA groups the most, which are the groups um, serviced by NGOs. So these are quite low income, and hence the size of the loans are relative to that. It will often be around 100 to $200 
that would be the size of a loan. However, we are also talking, so the base is broad, right? And so we're also targeting other types of communities that have a little stronger financial resilience. And here we would be talking about loans that are about a factor 10 higher. But also important to say that we definitely don't see loans as necessarily the primary value offering. This is one, and it's extremely important and it's fundamental for economic strengthening. And so is insurance and relevant to everyone. You talked about KYC, which is know your customer and some of these other regulatory protections that governments are being in place. What does JAMI do to make sure that your customers don't become over indebted? So one of the things we can do in our technology, as it is an accounting system, it allows us to see this person's savings over a period of time. And also whilst they're having the loan, do they maintain the ability to save? Do they start taking internal loans to cover up this loan within the group? And we also have direct communications through the technology, through the app to the person who is the trusted person of that savings groups in question, where we can actually reach out to understand more about the users. So in this way, we can monitor financial behavior and track if there is an issue at hand. Then collaborating with the development sector allows us also to utilize some of those resources to point to if we get an at-risk case. So, and I say if, because in the first setting, it was a smaller pilot of these 74 loans. So we didn't have an issue there, but that will occur at some point when we scale up, right? And so that's some of the things we see. It's quite amazing that with technology, you're able to get all of these data points, which essentially builds a picture of the creditworthiness of the borrower in a way that was never possible before, using also these informal points that had never been considered by banks. So it's just quite impressive to see how technology is allowing these decisions to be made using informal credit histories and other data to really expand the inclusion of different kinds of customers, which is good for all of us. So Charlotte, you're focused on East Africa now. What are your plans for expansion and where do you see Jammy going? So the Jammy One app as an accounting system for savings community is actually available in any Google Play Store, App Store, App Gallery. So you can just start using it. And that means that actually in 48 countries by now, it has been downloaded by groups and is being used as just an accounting tool. And of course, we want to leverage that potential and find global partners that can allow us to offer financial services in all countries and not go on a country by country basis. So that's, I would say, is the broad sense. We've also been part so far of the MasterCard program, MasterCard Lighthouse, and those different global players could be one conduit to reaching that goal. But on a more practical level, our next country is probably going to be Kenya where we're looking into some opportunities. Like you said, Ethiopia is not the general first pick for a country. I think it has provided a lot of opportunity to start there. But I believe that we are ready now to sort of take on one of the most competitive scenes and still be a competitive service provider in that space. And that's the test I want to expose ourselves to, combined with a big need and a high, high level of groups that are organized in Kenya. So used to saying Ethiopia. (laughs) Well, we know that Kenya is one of the most competitive markets for digital payments and financial service apps. So best of luck to you. That will be really an incredible testing ground. So as we look to wrap up, Charlotte, if there was one thing you could do to broaden the access to finance for women around the world, what would it be? It's difficult for me to not say Jamie (laughs) one. 
go ahead, please do. If there's one thing I would do, I would say that that is what we're trying to do is to prove the creditworthiness of these women. Because not only are they worthy, they're capable, they're strong, they're motivated, they're motivated like nothing else. And so just giving opportunities. And that's how we always talk about what we do is providing opportunities. And I believe that's what we're doing in Jamie One, proving that you are a unique individual, one, that other people trust you. And that finally, you have gone to a level of understanding of financial activities and the importance of that to you. And now you're ready to take the next step. That's what we try to prove with Yami One. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for all the work that you're doing with this fantastic population and everything that you're doing to expand finance and access to finance to women around the world, particularly the ones who need it the most. Best of luck in your efforts. And thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and also best of luck with the important work you guys are doing. Thank you. And thank you so much to our audience for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter, hashtag Capital Musings, or leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews help new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks, and until next time.